Hi. Hey, how's it going? Where are you? Uh, I'm, I'm in the um, Holiday Inn slash Chateau Lemoyne. It's quite nice here. I'm in. Uh, it's in. It's in the French Quarter. It's interesting to me that they that they lead with Holiday End and uh, and not <laughs> Chateau Lemoyne for some reason. Well, you know, Americans like their brands. They do. It's um. It's like like a moth to flame. <laughs> exactly. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, some forever chemicals that scientists have linked with various health risks have been found at five different locations on the Mississippi River. And judges in New Orleans decided on Monday to put all jury trials on hold until at least March, amid allegations that the court has been illegally excluding people with felony convictions from serving on juries for the last year and a half. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hey, Josh. Hey, how's it going? Good. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. Hi, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. All right, Josh, first up with you, a report produced by the Water Collaborative of Greater New Orleans. They're an advocacy group that focuses on the needs of the urban water sector said that five sites on the Mississippi River were found to have PFAS, which are known in the vernacular as forever chemicals. Tell us about the report. Sure, absolutely. So um, this this was a uh, report that the Water Collaborative produced uh, based on readings that they uh, sampled during during the summer, stretching from uh, June through July. And, and, And they took water samples and also soil samples, although the article that we produced here in the lens, it was focused solely on the water samples and the findings there. The Water Collaborative took samples from Point Coupe Parish in the northern part of the state, all the way down to Orleans Parish. And they found these PFAS chemicals or forever chemicals, as they're known, you know, in, in, in our vernacular, as you said, Carolyn, uh, at five different locations. And, and yet, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's not, I'll, I'll, I'll say that um, these chemicals are, are really quite ubiquitous um, to, like, I, I think could be fairly described as an alarming degree. There, there's a study out that, that uh, has, has concluded that uh, 97% of Americans have uh, these chemicals in their blood. Um, they're, they're ubiquitous throughout the world. They're used, they're manufactured as part of the production process for uh, consumer goods like uh, Teflon, um, nonstick uh, frying pans, you know, and, and in all kinds of industries. And, and they're maybe the companies that are most closely associated with, with the production of these chemicals are uh, 3M, which is based up in Minnesota, and uh, DuPont, but they're 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 everywhere. Um, so in a certain sense, maybe it's not altogether surprising that they're found here, but it does shed an important light, I think, on you know just the extent to which we might be exposed to them, maybe, and um, a, a report like this 
is is at least providing more data to, to give us all a, a better understanding of where they where they are at any given moment in time. Let's right. Say. What are some of the health risks that have been associated with these chemicals? Yeah, so, so there are um, different studies out um, showing to, to varying degrees that uh, they, they, they've been linked to, um, you know, uh, like a high level of exposure to some of these. And, and, and by the way, there, there, there's so many different varieties. Uh, it, it's honestly hard to get um, just one uh, definitive answer about how many different varieties. But one number that I found in my reporting I believe the source is the CDC, is that there are 9,000 different varieties. And, and, for, you know, and, and there are different health risks, risks associated with these different chemicals. But some of the health risks that our scientists and researchers have, have uh, linked to, to high levels of exposure include uh, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, uh, high levels of cholesterol, and, and I mean, really, the, the, the list goes on right. from there, basically. So what does it mean for the people who's, uh, who rely on the, the river for their drinking water? It's, it's honestly, it's hard to say with any uh, definition at this moment, I think, just, just because there's, um, there's, there's kind of a lack of, of incentive um, about at, at what level of exposure the health risks are really implicated. So the federal government currently doesn't have regulations for these. Um, the EPA has released um, uh, different health, advi- health advisories over the past few years. But you know, just to illustrate it, uh, the first one that they that they introduced in 2016 was uh, for for two um, PFAS chemicals specifically was for uh, 70 points per, uh, parts per trillion. And then last year, in, 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 in June of 2022, they uh, released another health advisory, this time bringing that down for one to 0.02 parts per trillion <laughs> and another to 0.004 parts per trillion. So, I mean, that, that, is, that is a tremendous difference. And, and what, what does that mean exactly for your average citizen who relies on specifically in Louisiana, the, the Mississippi River for, for the drinking water? And, and there are a number of parishes that do, not every parish, but a number of parishes do rely on the Mississippi River for the drinking water uh, to, to, to various extent. Um, I, think, I think it's really hard to say right now what it actually means. And, and it's kind of, you know, it, it's a little bit frustrating because, you know, as a reporter, you want to come in and, and provide as much definition as possible. Is it something that you have to be really concerned about or, mm-hmm. or not? You know, I, 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 I want to I be able to say with certainty one thing or the other, but it's just hard right now to, to come out with something that definitive, unfortunately. Right. Those were eye-popping numbers, those guidelines that jump from 70 to 0.00, whatever it was, it's minuscule. So those are simply guidelines. There's no regulation whatsoever on any of these right now? The short answer is right now, no. But the EPA is working on it. And they would, I think that they would 
characterize it as they're working hard on it. Uh, they, they have a proposed rule pending uh, interagency review at the federal level through this, to, to most, I'm sure it's a fairly obscure agency, but it, it's, it's one of the most important agencies uh, or sub-agencies in the federal government. It's, it's the Office of Information and, and Regulatory Affairs, um, which, which kind of has a purview into, you know, oversight over all different kinds of uh, regulations that different federal agencies are considering or proposing. Um, so, so the EPA's proposed a rule, which, which would uh, impose regulations here that will have uh, presumably some enforcement is pending with OIRA. The EPA said that they would have this out by the end of last year. That obviously has not happened yet. There, they, it, as it, in, in the course of my reporting, I reached out to the EPA and they told me that they're planning to have this uh, proposed rule published in the coming weeks. And their plan is to have that finalized by the end of 2023. So if and when that happens, then that could be something of a game changer in terms of, you know, let's say utilities maybe having uh, to take a, a harder look at this and maybe increase their uh, testing or, I mean, maybe depending on, on what the rule looks like, making some effort at actually trying to filter this out, uh, which, which is something that we don't see uh, at scale at all in this country. It's actually quite rare. Uh, in the course of my reporting, I, I found one utility in North Carolina that is, is, that's doing this, but it, it's very expensive for them to do it. I mean, most don't even test for it. So mm. there's, there's kind of like, you know, yeah, that's kind of where we're at at, at, at the moment. And I, I think we have real extreme concerns here too, especially where we're, we're situated in both in Louisiana and in New Orleans. But if you look at these um, PFAS lawsuits against, you know, 3M you brought up, for example, they have lawsuits in California and Michigan. They've been ordered to clean up in Alabama. They've been ordered to clean up in Minnesota and where they're based in Minnesota. And you, you think about all that groundwater, all that runoff, all that potential for contamination along the basin. And here we are in New Orleans at the bottom of it. And that's a whole, whole lot of drainage area where, you know, these chemicals are potentially entering from various states and localities. Um, that That is a lot of concern, you know, and then especially like Josh was saying, this this range of these levels that could potentially be allowed is is quite drastic. Totally, that, that, that's a great part, uh, point, Marta. Um, you know, the Mississippi River Basin is, is you know, just enormous. Um, it, it, it really, kind of challenges the imagination thinking about just how enormous it is, the, the, the landmass that it covers. There, there are more than 30 states uh, and, and, you know, a couple of provinces up in Canada for, for good measure that drain, uh, you know, eventually into the Mississippi River and that all comes down uh, to New Orleans. And, and, and just, you know, maybe an ancillary point here is that, uh, you know, in, in the absence of federal regulations, different states have stepped in and are, like in California, um, you know, pursuing uh, litigation against uh, specific companies. But, you know, they, 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 they've also, some of these states have, have um, implemented their, their own regulations. 
And and once again, that range though, I, I, I was getting at it. I, I was trying to get at it a bit in the article. That range itself is also tremendous. I mean, there, there's one in, in California, for instance. There's there, there's there's the regulation for um, one of these PFAS chemicals. I think it's 5.1 parts per trillion. And then in Nevada, there's a regulation. It's for a different PFAS chemical, and that one is like 666,000 parts per trillion. Mm. So it, it kind of boggles the mind a little bit to think about that kind of gap, you know. And what the what the repercussions are of of the the polluters. Certainly, we have a lot in our backyard. But if you're talking about, as Marta pointed out, that so much of it is coming downstream. And, and it's just mm-hmm. concentrating and concentrating. If there is blame to be cast, it's a wide net to cast the blame. And how do you then correct it? It's almost like these developing nations that are having to deal with the, the pollution of, of, the, of, of the developed world. No, no, no. I mean, that's, you're, you're fairly totally on point um, with that. I mean, you know, these, these things just, they they just don't break down in, in any kind of timeline that any reasonable person would be comfortable with, and there's nothing being done on the front end. Um, it really is kind of you know horrifying to think about the the aggregate impact, and God knows where where all this stuff is going. I mean, it's it's going everywhere basically, and it's going into all of us. And, you know, what does that mean? I mean, that, that's kind of the, the, the thing with this story is that the, the scale is, is frightening. But, you know, my goal isn't to frighten people, you know, needlessly or unnecessarily, you know. At, but it's just kind of we're living in this, this void currently where there, there's all this all this concern, um, you know, from from different communities and different uh, government apparatus are are trying to catch up. Essentially, I'm, I'm not sure anyone could say what what this all means because there, there's just so much unknown. And, and like I was saying, there's so many thousands of different varieties, and and this report really only focuses on on two, um, and the uh, EPA's advisories and this upcoming regulation, a proposed regulation, as I understand it, only talk about two different kinds of, of PFAS. I, I, I believe PFOS and, um, oh man, it's it's in the article, which I don't have in front of me um, right now. I think PFOA. So yeah, that kind of, that kind of maybe, maybe paints a picture about how much of this is just simply unknown. Okay, Josh, thank you so much. That's great. Absolutely. This story is a product of the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk, an editorially independent reporting network based at the University of Missouri School of Journalism in partnership with Report for America and the Society of Environmental Journalists, funded by the Walton Family Foundation. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and Lens Editor, Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. 
The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. All right, Nick, jury trials are on hold for at least six weeks while allegations that the court has been illegally excluding some people from the jury, jury pool are being investigated. We talked about this last week. What's going on here? Yeah, so the uh, judges at Criminal District Court in New Orleans on Monday of this week decided to put on hold all jury trials. Um, and this is in response to like you said, allegations made by originally by an advocacy organization, Voice of the Experience, and then later by defense attorneys that the court has not been following state law when summoning jurors. In August of 21, the law changed to allow uh, people with felony convictions who have been off probation or parole for the last five years to serve on juries. Previously, no one with a felony conviction was allowed to serve on a jury. But after the law changed, the summonses that were being sent out by uh, the court didn't, the language on them didn't change. So there's a list of qualifications on the actual summons that says, if you were convicted of a felony, you you are not qualified to, to serve on a jury. And that didn't change after the law. So the uh, vote sent a letter to the judges saying, hey, look, this, this language is wrong. You know, you've been sending these out. Um, you should, you know, put a hold on jury trials and um, and, and fix this. But initially, the court didn't do anything. It it kind of just kept moving forward, and and there was a trial uh, scheduled to to begin last week, and it and it did. And defense attorneys objected to to the potential jury, um, and that is kind of how how we got to this point. Uh, the the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal ordered a hearing on this issue, and prior to that hearing taking place, the judges went ahead and said, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna put a hold on jury trials and." get this sorted out and and wait until until March to start up again. Okay. So what are they suggesting that the impact might have been on jury trials that have taken place in in this interim period where potentially um, people who should have been able to serve were not? Yeah, so it's hard to say. What we know, what we found out yesterday, this hearing actually ended up going forward, even even though um, the judges decided to put a hold on, on trials. This hearing took place, so some of the, the administrators in the court were called to kind of be questioned about this process. Um, and one of the things that came out is that in this period since August of 21 until uh, until this year, there were 340 people who said they had felony convictions and were disqualified for that reason from jury service. Now, some of those people were likely rightfully disqualified because, you know, they hadn't been off parole for, for five years. Right. Um, but there was no way to determine how many of those um, were, were should have been uh, eligible. Um, and then in addition, you know, they send out 4,000 summons every month. About half of those people don't respond at all. Um, and so what defense attorneys are saying is, you know, you have these qualifications that are wrong on the summons. Uh, we have no idea how many people with felony convictions who should have been eligible saw this, just threw away their summons and didn't respond at all. Right. Um, so that 340 number is really, you know, it's almost meaningless because at, 
you don't you don't know what percentage of those should have been eligible and then you don't have any idea what percentage of people may have may have not even gotten to that point of, of being disqualified because they never responded in the first place. Okay. Is there also a suggestion that some of the juries that that were actually sat and um, resulted in convictions, the the uh, the findings are tainted because it wasn't representative in the first place? Yeah, definitely. So that is uh, something that that vote brought up initially when they wrote this letter to judges and. Um, it's something that defense attorneys have brought up. There is now another case um, that is in post-conviction where someone has has filed a, a motion for a new trial mm. based on this uh, issue, and that hearing is going to take place um, on February 1st. Um, so it is going to be determined kind of whether or not this was a, a serious enough issue to impact past cases. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's likely going to be something that, that the appellate courts and the higher courts are going to, are going to have to weigh in on. So we'll see, you know, the, the district attorney um, this week was asked about it and kind of, you know, questioned both about whether he knew about the practice, which he said he didn't, but then whether or not it was going to impact past convictions. And he basically said, you know, I hope not. Um, so it's unclear kind of how this is all going, going to play out. Um, you know, yesterday, the prosecutor on, on the case, you know, raised objections and basically said, you know, this 340 people, it's, you know, a, a kind of a drop in the bucket compared to the tens of thousands of summons that are sent out. And, you know, defense attorneys can't prove that you know anyone was erroneous, erroneously disqualified. You know we don't have that. They can't prove that anyone with a felony conviction threw out their summons. Um, we just don't know. And you know he was basically arguing that unless you can actually show that that people were, were specifically disqualified, then um, it shouldn't have an impact on, on the case. So I think that's kind of a preview of the arguments that we're going to see uh, when we have this hearing for the new trial. Um, well, it's February 1st next week. Next week. Yep. And it, and it seems like we already kind of got a taste with that, too, with the ruling yesterday, right? Because Judge is a good Douglas um, ruled that the, the trial would continue and the jury would remain as they had been selected. Has the jury been but, selected? No. See, well, the, the hearing yesterday was a little bit weird because the fact that the judges had already decided to put on hold jury trials until March it made the hearing in some ways it, it was hard to kind of understand the impact of it because the jury that, that uh, the defendant was objecting to had already been sent home. Um, and it wasn't going to be the jury that he ends up getting anyway, because his trial has already been continued until at least March. Um, and this is, was a point that uh, the prosecutors made, you know, he called it a waste of time. Um, but yes, I think it does give us some preview of the judge denied this motion, despite the fact that the, the decision had already been made to recall the jury um, and pointed to state law, basically saying that, let me actually just read the state law. Yeah, I mean, her reasoning was very much like it wasn't intentional or it wasn't, you know, like a calculated. Yeah, so so there's a state law saying that unless, unless fraud has been practiced, some great wrong committed um, that would cause irreparable harm to the defendant, or unless someone, unless people were systematically uh, excluded on the basis of race, 
then uh, a jury pool cannot be uh, thrown out. Um, so she kind of pointed to this state law saying, you know, whatever the issues here didn't rise to that level um, and, and on that basis denied the motion. I think that, you know, we're gonna, we'll, we'll see how kind of other judges interpret this and, and interpret both the um, federal and state laws surrounding it, which, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I think that I'll just, I'll just leave it there. Yeah. That also would, to me, would suggest a, a difficult, um, a hurdle, a difficult hurdle to cross if you were going for an appeal based on a jury that had convicted and you would then say, well, it wasn't fair, it wasn't representative because of this. It seems like it would be a high bar to cross. It yeah, does, but I'm sure there's a, a lot more we're going to learn in the coming months about the, those numbers, you know, how many people were affected, and then whether or not uh, defense attorneys are able to find some people who were, you know, improperly disqualified. Right. Yes. Or preemptively. Right. And it, yeah, and another big question that I don't feel like was sort of resolved at this hearing was, you know, you have the people within this, whatever, 17-month-ish period who received summons, and of those people, 340 were were disqualified for felony convictions. But there's also questions about whether or not people have been being marked disqualified for the past, you know, years um, due to felony convictions, whether or not those people have been stricken from the list of people who had received summons. In the Permanently. Permanently, right. Um, and that, to me, just has not quite been resolved yet. Um, and even, even kind of the administrators gave, from my perspective, Perspective, kind of fuzzy answers um, on on how that how that works. Um, so I think that's something that that's going to need to be cl cleared up a bit and could you know impact kind of how much of a, a effect this has on, on uh, things going forward. And it just brings up some really good questions about you know how these types of big changes, what are big changes in the law, are communicated to these offices, these local smaller offices. And then how or whether or not they're audited in any capacity whatsoever. To see um, if they're following through. Yeah, and right. this goes for yeah. all, not just jury. This goes for all sorts of things that are, are handed down from the legislatures every year. So really a lot of just kind of unknown impact there without knowing how that communication um, proceeds. Right. Yeah, one of the I mean, one of the really shocking things in the hearing, I thought I thought was uh, the civil district court judicial administrator testified kind of on their process for summoning jurors. And she said that she found out about the change in the law in August of 21, when it, you know, the same month that it was supposed to go into effect. And she found out from a constituent mailer that she got at her house randomly that, um, you know, mentioned the change in law. And, and she said, you know, rather than throwing it out, I, I looked at it, I happened to look at it and thought, you know, this could really impact how how we should be doing things at, at civil district court and right. you know brought it up you know still civil court as well we're sending out subpoenas with with or sending out summons with bad language um and outdated language that that suggested you still can serve with felony so it's not like it got fully fixed right away um you know she she claims that when people would would mark down that they had a felony on the questionnaire they would have individuals follow up and that they were actually inquiring about when that when that felony was and when someone got off probation or parole. But clearly there wasn't a, a 
very robust system in place to ensure that these court administrators were aware of the change in law right. and um, were adjusting accordingly. I mean, there are big well, questions about who maintained those lists and how they maintain them and, you know, historical uh, knowledge at the organizations. Yep. Yeah, I mean, what we what we kind of do know is that there were, I mean, there was a practice in place at criminal district court, at least, um, where if someone on this online questionnaire marked that they had a felony, uh, essentially there was some follow-up just to confirm that that felony was in fact a felony and, and they would check with the criminal court uh, records. And then they would they would mark them disqualified and that would show up in this jury management system that they use. The big question is every year they get a new uh, kind of master list that's composed of DMV records and voter registration records. and kind of the question is whether or not that disqualification list is carrying over each year when the, those records are, are updated. And, you know, the two, the kind of two court administrators that were questioned about this, I thought gave kind of vague answers and, and never, we, I don't think we ever really got a clear um, answer on, on whether or not that's the case and, mm -hmm. and whether or not that would imply that those people weren't going to be sent summons in the future. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the old adage, wheels of justice turn slowly. We just added a little more <laughs> monkey wrench into the wheel. Another monkey wrench. All right, Nick, thank you. Thank you. All right, y'all have a good week. You too. You too. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, Joshua Rosenberg, Nick Crestel and Lens Editor, Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news, plus opinions, at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>